Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, I have some good news for you. Jesus is coming back. I've got some disappointing news, though. I don't have a clue when, where, or how. Unfortunately, he put me on the welcoming committee, not on the planning committee. Now, I've read some people, and I've seen some people over the years, and I'm convinced if Jesus came back, at the time that they didn't think he was coming back, they'd say, well, wait a minute, Lord. It's not time yet. Go back. I remember years ago, there was this, this pamphlet that was being mailed out to all the pastors across the country. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. I wish I still had one of those. Um, you know, that was sent out, and I think the guy updated, like 92 reasons why he's going to come back in, in 1992. But in our passage today, the Apostle Peter tells us how to live how to live in light of the Lord's return. In fact, he starts it out with these words, the end of all things is near. Now that creates a bit of a problem before we dig into how we're supposed to live in terms of, of, of end times living, because he wrote that 2,000 years ago. So if the end of all things is near, and if it was near 2,000 years ago, would you, would you agree that Peter has a slightly different definition of the word near than what we use? I want to take a little bit of time to ex and explore this whole concept of end times thinking, prophecies and all that sort of stuff before we dig into how he says to live. Because otherwise, there's an elephant in the living room. And that is, how in the world could the Bible, if it's the Word of God, make statements like, the end of all things is near, and then 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for it, we're still talking about it. Now, I think it's important for us to understand how Scripture looks at these things. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out exactly when Jesus is going to return. And for 2,000 years, people have been wrong. There's always something on the forefront, a, a blood moon on Passover coming up, or this or that, or different world events going on. Many people have this natural propensity to get all hyped up, and they're hyper-curious, and they, they want to know the future. And so prophecy sells, but so do fortune tellers. How many of you remember Y2K, or the Mayan calendar running out? Or how many of you, you read the Hal Lindsey books years ago? How many of you remember 1948, before I was born, the year that Israel was restored as a nation, the certainty that was held by so many Christians back then that by the time the next generation died, Jesus would surely be back. You could go back through history and you would find the same thing happening for all over the last 2,000 years, all through church history. Even in the early church, people would pick, oh, now we're on this, and, and they would grab something and they would try to figure it out. But here's the simple fact. Jesus came, he left, 
and he said he's coming back. That's what we know. In John 14, 3, he said this, the, the very night that he was betrayed, when he was up in the upper room with Peter and the guys, he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. You know, no, Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't the first one to say that in the Terminator. You know, I'll be back. Jesus told us he would be back. And he said, and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Now, I want to show you how badly we've missed it. The early church even missed it. The apostles missed it. After Jesus went up into heaven and they're standing there, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, an angel appears to them and, and says, he's gone. He's gone. Here's what's up. He's going to return in the same manner that you saw him. And they probably took that literally and thought the same place, the same time, the exact same way. And so guess what they did? They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, to be sure, had told them to remain in Jerusalem until what? Until the Spirit comes upon you, till the, the gift that I promised you the Father would send comes upon you. But they had been given a commission. They were supposed to go into all the world, spreading the gospel. And what they did is they stayed in their holy huddle there in, in Jerusalem, even after Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, until you go to Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, God sends a persecution to spread them, to scatter them. And at that point, they finally go out and start sharing the good news of Jesus in Samaria and to the othermost ends of the earth. Before we jump to our study of 1 Peter this morning, I want to take a look at Mark chapter 13, going back to verse 32, because Jesus said he was coming back, but these are the words about how he was going to come back and when he's going to come back. Here's what he told them. He tells us, he says, what? No one, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Now, who's the son? Jesus himself, but only the father. Now, right there, that ought to give you pause when we start speculating, don't you think? I mean, it's rather arrogant for me to write a book, do a prophecy conference, or stand up here and say, Jesus is going to come back on this date at this time, and this is how he has to do it. Jesus himself says he himself does not know the date or the time. But he continues with what is important for the apostles to know, and he continues with what is important for us to know. He says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each one with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to what? To keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he suddenly, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, here's the interesting thing. Like the early church and as one of the apostles still at the time he wrote this, Peter apparently thought that Jesus' return was imminent. And as I said, that's the elephant in the room if the Bible is supposed to be the Word of God. So I want to take a couple moments and explain some things. The first thing is the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16, we're told that all Scripture is, is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from God. That's why it is the Word of God. That's why I believe it is without error. Now, that doesn't mean that every little phrase it uses has to make, be made to walk on all fours the way we want it to walk on all fours. For instance, the Bible uses colloquial phrases. 
you know, the everyday language of the time. It uses exaggerations. It uses metaphors, just like we do in our everyday language. When we say to our friend, hey, you missed a great party. Everybody was there. Did you really mean that everybody was there? Probably not. But your friend knows what you mean. And some people take Scripture and they woodenly read everything into it. And if you do that, you'll get in trouble when you do that. There's a place where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Now, I doubt if many of you take that totally seriously because I don't see very many people missing an eye or missing a hand here. You think that might be hyperbole? Probably. Most Christians seem to think so. There have been Christians in church history that did take that literally. One of the early church fathers emasculated himself because of this. And so you've got to be a bit careful that you don't read the language of the Bible differently than you would read regular language. There are word pictures that are used. And languages, especially ancient Near Eastern languages, were often painting pictures that weren't as mathematically or scientifically precise or tight as our Western way of looking at things make them to be. But still, at the end of the day, the Bible is the Word of God. And when it calls something a sin, it is sin. And when it says that we need to do something, we should be doing it. So it is the Word of God, but we need to remember this, that the people who wrote it were people like you and like me, and what they wrote was without error, but they weren't necessarily themselves without error in their understanding. On top of that, there's the fact that, that just because they were writing the Word of God didn't mean that they always understood the full implications of everything that they wrote. In fact, Peter himself, we saw about eight years ago when we started this message series in chapter 1, in verses 10 to 12, he said this, he said, the prophets who prophesied of the coming of the Messiah searched intently and with great care as they sought to understand his suffering and the glories to follow and the time frame and how it would all work out. And it was told to them, these things are not for you. They were being given them by the Spirit for people in the future. Now, the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus were absolutely spot on, but the people that wrote them didn't necessarily fully understand it. And so that actually means that you could have, a, you could have had a prophecy conference by, back then with, with stools up there and, and guys, and you'd have Isaiah and you'd have Daniel and have Ezekiel, and they could be telling you about the first coming of Jesus and what they understood could have been wrong. Not what they wrote, but the way they understood it. What they wrote was right, but their understanding was skewed. And if you grasp this concept, it will help you with those parts of the Bible, the Word of God, where, where it is accurate, but sometimes the understanding, the framework of the writer is seen through his humanity. The Bible's without error, but the writers don't always understand everything that they're writing. So why did Jesus, or why has Jesus delayed his return? Well, Peter wrote another letter, 2 Peter, and I want to draw your attention to chapter 3. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So why hasn't Jesus returned? Because every day he waits, another rebel who's bound for hell becomes a son or daughter 
bound for eternity. You see, there there's, have always been incredible injustices and, and horrible things that go on worldwide, community-wide, and even in our personal lives. And that's, that's part of living in a fallen world. And for 2,000 years, there have been times and places where people call out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come and fix this. And many of you have been there, both looking globally or, or even at your own life. But I want to tell you, I'm not real anxious for Jesus to come tomorrow. I'm not going to tell him when it's time to come. You know why? Because I still have friends that don't know him. I still know there's people that need to get into the kingdom. And the longer he tarries, the higher the probability, the chance that they will get into the kingdom. Because he has delayed and because he's allowed sin to continue to have its day, people like me and people like you, many of you have had an opportunity to faith Jesus. Now, if you've been checking things out and and you've not yet given Jesus the steering wheel of your life, whether you're here or, or you may be listening to this message on the podcast or on the CD, and it's making sense to you, but, but you've not done that yet, you've not faithed Jesus, you need to understand His offer to forgive your sins, to adopt you into His family and, and come in and change you from the inside out. When He does come, the offer's off the table. It's done. There's no second chance. It's appointed to a man or a woman once to die, and after that, the judgment. You don't get a mulligan on it. So are these the end times? I don't really know. It could be a thousand years. It could be a couple years. It's his call, not mine. But in the meantime, in the meantime, how does he tell you and me how to live? He tells us to watch. He tells us to be alert. He tells us to be prepared so that if he comes at a time when we're not thinking it's that time, we are ready. So what does that look like? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, he tells us. And he gives us four very practical, here's how to live your life, illustrations of how we ought to live in light of the fact that Jesus could be back at any time. He says we need to be sober and alert. We need to love one another. We need to be hospitable. And we need to use whatever gifts we have to serve others to the glory of God. We're going to unpack that here. First, let's read the passage. He begins in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Number two, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Number three, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Number four, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with all the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Four simple commands. So let's unpack them, and I invite you, if you haven't already, take out your life notes and, and, and fill in the blanks there with us. And let's see how they're to be lived out. The first one when it comes to end times living is this. Be alert and sober. Why? So that you can pray. That's the reason, because of the impact that it has on your prayer life. Now, the word sober in the English language as we use it today, it's kind of morphed a little bit from the biblical concept of what was meant here in, in the original language. Sober to us is what? The opposite of drunkenness, right? 
But really what it means, what sober really means, even in the English, the way it was used, you know, 150, 200 years ago, it means to be clear-headed. It means to, to think accurately. So that he's not so much saying stop being drunk, although you're not really going to think accurately if you're drunk, okay? He's saying to all of us to learn to be cautious, to be careful, to be on the alert. What's interesting to me is this was written by a guy who had fallen asleep when he was told to be alert and to pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus was praying and, and he was asking the Father if there's any other way to take this cup from me so I don't go to the cross, he had asked his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, he'd taken them with him in there in the garden. He said, guys, stay here, keep watch, and pray with me. And he came back repeatedly, and what did they do? They nodded off. They'd fallen asleep. And I wonder if that was in the back of, of Peter's mind as, as he writes this. Now, the reason we need to be alert here, again, is so that it doesn't hinder our prayers. Why? Because we're in the middle, and you might, I didn't put this in your notes, but you might want to write this down in your notes. We're in the middle of spiritual warfare. And when all hell is breaking loose around you, when, when we're at warfare, you need to be alert, and you need to be clear-headed, and you need to be sober. As a military guy, I can tell you that it pays to be alert, to recognize the, the need to, as we used to say, keep your head on a swivel, know what's going on around you. We need to be attuned to potential threats at all times. And that's not just uh, true in the physical realm, it's true in the spiritual realm as well. And that's what Peter's simply saying. We need never to forget that we're in the midst of spiritual warfare. Live your life like you're in a, in a dangerous place, not on leave. Now, on your life notes, I've got Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 listed there. And go ahead and circle it. And you may want to go back later and read the entire passage. Just let me share a couple of verses that, that Paul writes there in Ephesians. He says, finally, he's summing up what all of he's, he's been teaching there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armors of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, you and I may think that our, our battle right now is against the culture. We may think that it's against political things. We may think it's against the, the neighbor from Hades that we have, against that co-worker who seems to have it out for us, or against that, that ex-spouse who just wants, wants one more ounce of blood, against the economy. You take your pick. And there's all these things that, that worry us and the struggles, but, but he says, you know what? You need to understand that our greatest struggle is none of these things. Our greatest struggle is the spiritual battle for our soul. It's a spiritual battle. And all of these other things, they're ancillary, and some of them, yeah, they're part of it, but it's the spiritual battle that's the most important. And in the spiritual battle, the most important weapon is prayer. So he says, be alert and sober so that we can pray appropriately. Now, one of the marks of, of being uh, alert and sober is that you're catching stuff. You're noticing stuff. You're noticing it on the front end, not after the fact. And when it comes to prayer, it means uh, what you could call front-end praying. Front-end praying means that I'm praying before the problem escalates out of control rather than after the problem has shown up and escalated. 
And a lot of times our prayers are back-end prayers for a variety of reasons. One of them is, is when it comes to personal prayers. Some of us aren't in a community, in a small group, in a sense of community where we feel safe enough to ask anybody to, to pray for, for something. We're worried about that hasn't already, that, that has not yet happened, uh, especially if it's significant. You know, our marriage is in trouble or our workplace situation is scary. And we don't want to share with anybody because we think they might think poorly of us or we have the lack of, of front end praying because we're not, as I said, in a, in a small community of people that we can trust or feel we can trust. And we can come to them and say, hey, you know what? I, I, I trust you with this. It's been gnawing out, but will you pray about this? We all need in our lives a place like that, a small group Bible study or, or a cadre of, of a few close friends. Well, on the front end, we can share the hard things instead of waiting until the back end. There's another side of front end praying as well, and, and that is being on the alert and watching for those we know and we love and we care for and praying for them early instead of praying for them later. I bet a lot of you are like me. You've, you've got people that you're close to, dearly loved ones, family members, co-workers, etc., where, where there'll be something that, you know, you just... Something doesn't just doesn't feel right, and we're not sure, and they haven't shared it with us, and it concerns us. And I'm sure you've been there with people like that before. Well, if I'm alert, I can pray for that person. God knows what's going on in their life, even if he hasn't revealed it or they haven't revealed it to me. And so I can pray on the front end about that thing rather than going, oh, it's nothing. And certainly rather than going home and talking to my spouse, and absolutely before I go and tell other people in a thing called gossip or, or pool talk, you know, God has called us to relationships and, and to be on the alert. So on the front end of things, before the battle has turned against us, we're, we're prepared and we're, we're seeking His power, His power in our lives and, and His power in the lives of the friends and the people that we care about and the people that we're in, in relationship with. We're calling Him into the situation. And that's why He says, be sober, be alert, so that you can pray. And as a practical application, we do front end praying. Be sober, and alert so that you can pray front-end prayers. But also, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. Now, the Greek word that's used here is a, is a word which can be translated fervently or, or intensely. So what does it mean to, to love fervently, to love intensely, to love deeply? Well, it's, it's beyond the cliche way that we use the word love. The word love back then and the word love today can mean all kinds of things. I can say I love my wife. I also love strawberry ice cream, but I think my wife means a little bit more to me than strawberry ice cream. Wouldn't you hope so? <laughs> okay, she does mean more to me. But we just throw out this word in our, in our culture. We say, I love you. Oftentimes it just means I, I like what you do for me. I like the way you treat me. What he's saying is he's saying, here's what you need to understand in light of the spiritual battle. And don't forget, Peter thought Jesus is coming back soon. He says, your love for one another, it can't be superficial. You can't just be, hey, I love you, man. It's got to have actions. It's, it's got to have feet to it because it's so easy to say those words. But do you really mean them? Have you ever had someone come up to you and, and say, I want you to know I love you in the Lord. Now, for those of you who are long-term Christians, you already know what that means. They know that you aren't going to like the next thing that they're going to tell you. But they feel the need to tell you, no, I love you in the Lord. There's always a but that follows after that. That's not what Peter's talking about. 
He's saying to love in this way. He says to love and do the loving thing even when you don't want to. I do the loving thing even when I don't want to. You see, deep love is not just easy love. In our marriages, in our families, in our Christian friendships, we often struggle with that because many of us think that it's hypocritical to do what we don't want to do. But it's not hypocritical to do what you don't want to do. It's loving. It's making a choice to love in spite of your feelings. Every now and then when I was when I used to do a lot of marital counseling, I'd have a couple and, and there'd be one of them and one of, the, one of the people in the couple would say, well, you never, and you can fill the blank with whatever you want. And, and so then the, their spouse would end up doing that thing to, that they knew that their, their loved one wanted to do. And so then they come in the next time and say, well, you only did that because I told you. Uh, yeah. And then they would discount it because they, they would think, well, it's not an act of love unless you wanted to do it. And oftentimes I tell, tell a husband or a wife, well, if you find it hard doing that, just do it over and over again until you do love doing it, until you can do it. Otherwise, it's just a transaction. Deep love does what we don't want to do. It's because biblical agape love is not an emotion. It's a commitment. It's not a feeling. It's an action. And that's how we're able to love those who are enemies by definition. If you're my enemy, I don't like you. And if I really love you with emotion feeling, you're not my enemy. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous love chapter in the Bible, it describes love and it uses words like kind and patient and not keeping account of wrong and not easily angered. And when you think about it, I don't have any problem being angered by the people that I really enjoy being around. I don't have any problem with being patient with people who don't frustrate me. And neither do you, if you're honest. I don't have a problem with not keeping score with people who haven't hurt me. So the rubber really meets the road in terms of are we loving when we look in the mirror to see how we treat those people who annoy us, those people who harass us, or those people who absolutely bug the living daylights out of us. And so Peter says the end of all things is near. You're at spiritual warfare. Be on the alert. Be sober so that you can pray. And in the midst of all this, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. Deep love does a, a loving thing even when it doesn't want to. And deep love, if you're going to write this one down too, it's willing to give more than it gets in return. Deep love is willing to give more than it gets in return. Now, it doesn't always do that, but it you know, sometimes the score is even, but it's willing to give more than it gets. And frankly, we do need to understand that sometimes fervent, intense, deep love of somebody is going to be tough love. Hebrews 12, 6 talks about how, how God disciplines those that he loves. And it's a picture of parenting. And by the way, when he speaks to the Lord disciplining, he's not always, it's not always like a spiritual swat on the butt because we did something wrong. Sometimes it's stretching us. Sometimes it's stretching us to, to show us what we could do, how we could do better. So there's the discipline of punishment, and there's the, the discipline of being stretched. Both are disciplined so that the fruit of righteousness may come out of it. The third thing he tells us is he says to offer hospitality without complaining, without grumbling. Now, literally in verse 9 of, of 1 Peter 4, 
it says without grumbling and, and, and hospitality. And we need to understand this because we sometimes get the, this idea of hospitality uh, mixed up. And I want to help you out with a little bit. The literal translation of this word is to be a lover of strangers. To be hospitable, to have uh, hospitality in your life is to be a lover of strangers. In other words, we care and we help those that, that we don't necessarily know. They're strangers to us. It doesn't mean that I care and help out everybody in the world and, and everybody that shows up on some slideshow or some brochure that, that I get or whatever. It means whoever comes across my path. And it's particularly true, he says here, of the brother or the sister in the faith in the body of Christ. And these verses are all on your note sheet, but I want, I'm going to just want to draw your attention to a few verses here. You can look at them up over most of them later this week. Hebrews 13, 1 to 3 says this. Keep on loving each other as brothers or sisters. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if they were your fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In Romans 12, 13, it says, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice loving the stranger. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 8 speak of the requirements for, for anyone who wants to be a spiritual overseer, a pastor, a leader in ministry. It says they must be hospitable. They must love strangers. And in 1 Timothy 5, 10, one of the requirements for any widow in the church that was going to take, uh, be taken in by the church and, and given financial support, it says she had to previously been one who had practiced hospitality. Let me give you a few points here about biblical hospitality so that we understand what it is. Because there's a distinction I'm going to draw here. You may want to jot these down. Hospitality is not necessarily entertaining. Hospitality and entertaining aren't necessarily the same. Lou and I are lovers of strangers. We have the gift of hospitality. We love meeting new people. We love reaching out and meeting the needs of people. And over the years, our home has, has literally been open to people from all over the world. Ours was the, was the house where, where kids' friends hung out. We hosted international military students uh, who were attending schools in the United States. I think I counted it at our daughter Julia's wedding. I think there were people from like 14 different nations were, were at her wedding there in Washington, D.C. because of the people that had crossed our paths over the years. But I want to be honest with you, there's, there's something else we also are. Lou and I are entertainers, and I don't mean like, you know, you know on comics. You know, I'm not the best comedian, and you say amen to that. Okay, but I want to help you understand the difference between the two. Some of us, some of us are in, into entertaining, but we're not into hospitality. Entertaining is, 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 is basically waiting until the house is all fixed up, until things are perfect. And I get that. The entertainer in us, Lou and I, you know, Lou has special dishes that, that we don't use every day when, when we're just eating ourselves. We have special dishes we'll bring out, and, and some people that know my wife well say, you got a lot of dishes, Lou. Um, she's been told that. But if we're having a party, we, we, if we're having a party, having a bunch of people over, over, we actually clean the kitchen and, and we pick up the dog's toys before people come over. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's what I want those of us who are entertainers but not hospitable to understand. If it all depends on everything being perfect before you open the door, you're an entertainer, but you're not being hospitable. Biblical hospitality opens the door even when the dog's toys are all over the floor. Biblical hospitality opens the door even when the living room isn't picked up. 
Biblical hospitality opens the door even when Walt's books are scattered all over the place on the floor and on the table as he's trying to study because it's loving strangers bringing them in. Because your entertainment has a little side to it of impressing and hospitality is all about serving. It's about loving. It's about serving others. Now, I'm just trying to be as honest as possible. And anybody that knows Lou and I and that, that we both try to be hospitable, but we also enjoy entertaining people. We, we love be, things being nice. I, I love showing and, and sharing the house that the Lord has blessed us with. And, and I love just sitting back and, and watching people have a good time or enjoy the fruit of the labors of, of all the stuff there. I never want to think it's hospitable. I want to understand it's entertaining. The second thing about it is this. It doesn't keep score. Hospitality doesn't keep score. Now, entertaining can keep score. Well, it's your turn for us to come to your house. You know, we, you, know you came to our house last time. But hospitality doesn't keep score. We don't, you don't worry about how many times you've had them over to your place. Uh, you know, once, maybe twice, well, it's your turn. Well, if you do that, then that's, that's being transactional. That's a transaction. Or, or those other, those social niceties. There's some of you that, that get ticked off because you never get a thank you note for uh, having someone over. And eight years later, you're still ticked off. And, and it's important to write thank you notes. It's important to follow the social protocol of our culture. But I want to tell you, if, if we're giving more than we're getting, if we're being genuinely a lover of strangers from our end, we're not going to sit there and keep score. We might appreciate that note. Anybody not appreciate a thank you note? We might appreciate that note, but we're not going to care whether we get it or not. We might appreciate that, that invite back, but we're not going to care about whether we get it or not because we're doing this for Jesus, not for ourselves. Be alert so that we can pray. Love deeply. Practice hospitality without grumbling. And finally, Peter says, number four, use your God-given gifts to serve others. Now, we all have things that we're good at. And that's really what he's talking about. In verses 10 through 11, he says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Now, he's not talking about speaking only in terms of, of being up on a stage as a teacher. It means anything, whether it be words of wisdom, words of encouragement, words of knowledge, all that stuff goes in here. He's simply saying that all of us have certain things that, that God has shaped us, that, that God has gifted us with the ability to do, and we need to be doing these things in this warfare scenario, using them to serve others, making a genuine difference. So here's the question for you. Are you using your gifts in an identifiable way to further the kingdom of God? Is there somewhere or, or something where you say, you know what, I'm using this skill, I'm using this gift to advance the cause of the kingdom of God? I'm not just talking about the, the things that are recognized in, in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or in Ephesians 4, the, the lists of the gifts of the Spirit. Those are just examples. We've all got gifts and we're supposed to use them for His glory. Now, with your gift, you've got to watch out for, for three things, three dangers when it comes to gifts. The first is, is, is gift envy. And what gift envy is this? Gift envy is, well, I want to be you. 
I, I see what God has gifted you to do, and, and, and I want to say, oh man, I, if only I could do that, if only I could sing, if, if only I could speak, if, if I only had the heart to help people, if, if I had the gift of mercy, or if I had the finances so that I could just give generously like you do, or if I had the gift of helps, and over and over again. And what happens with, with gift envy is we want to be someone else. And the Bible describes us as the body of Christ. And in the body, there's eyes, and there's ears, and there's a nose, and, and there's, there's feet, and there's a spleen, and, and liver, and things like that. And in, in your body, you have all these different things, and, and, and Paul talks about that thing, and he says some are, are on display for others, some are, are more private, and there's exciting things, there's ugly things and all, but we are what we are. And if you're a thumb, don't say, well, I want to be an ear, unless God's told you to be an ear, unless God's gifted you to be an ear. And what he's saying is gift envy will kill you. If you say, I want to be someone else, don't want to be someone else, be you. Be the best you that God has created you to be. The second one is what we call gift projection. Gift envy says, I want to be you. Gift projection simply says, well, you need to be me. You need to be like I am. And it's funny, whatever we feel called about or passionate about, have you ever noticed that, that there are people that think that everybody else has to be exactly passionate about everything that they're passionate about and to that level? And so some of us go through life saying, well, well when you really understand, when you get, then you'll understand and you'll be like me. No, you won't. I won't. Gift envy will destroy you. Gift projection will destroy us. And then there's gift obsession. Gift obsession is when you say, well, I'll help out when I figure out what my gift is. I'm just going to keep trying to figure out what my gift is, what my gift is. And people go through life and go through an entire life when, you know, not doing diddly squat for the kingdom of God because they're still trying to figure out what their gift is. And, and a lot of us, you know, you ask them what their gift is. Well, I don't know. I'm just still trying to figure that out. Well, well, I would say just do something. I don't care what. Just do something. When the battle's going on and the, and the enemy's overrunning the camp, you don't sit in the kitchen cooking and say, well, I'm just a cook. Take a spatula and hit somebody with it. You know, do something. Take some action. The needs are always greater than the volunteers. And every one of us should have something where we go, I'm trying to advance the kingdom of God by doing this that God's given me. There was a guy in St. Louis a number of years ago named Rick Ankiel. He was a pretty good pitcher for the Cardinals, and then suddenly something happened, and he couldn't find the plate at all. It was a heartbreaking thing, so he got, he got sent down to the minor leagues. And after trying to regain his pitching while he was in the minors, he, he briefly returned to the majors in 2004, and he, he switched to the outfield in early 2005. For two and a half years, he honed his skills as a hitter and a fielder. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that pitchers aren't known for their ability to hit the ball, okay? So he honed his skills in the minor league system, and then he returned to the Cardinals, to the major leagues, August 9th, 2007. And as a Cardinal for the next two years, he hit 47 home runs as an outfielder and two as a pitcher. At the end of his career, Ankiel became the only player apart from Babe Ruth to have won at least 10 games as a pitcher and also hit at least 70 home runs. He's also the only player other than Roof to start a postseason game as a pitcher and hit a home run in the postseason as a position player. How did he do it? He kept on playing. He kept on using what God had given him to develop so that he could contribute to the mission of his team. 
And that's what God calls those of us who call ourselves Christ followers to do. Play your position. And if you don't know what your position is, play any position, but make a difference. We're at war, and that's in times living. Praying on the front end, loving deeply, being hospitable, playing our role, serving others. You know, the church universal and, and individual churches and fellowships can be like a boat. And there's two kinds of boats in this case. There's the contiki where, where everyone has an oar and everybody pulls together or else they get thrown overboard, okay? And then there's a love boat where everybody's in a chaise lounge, you know, drinking their, their drink with a little umbrella in it. But they're just enjoying life and, and they're complaining about something. Well, I think you know which boat we're supposed to be. So grab an oar and start pulling or else you may end up overboard. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.